You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, on the journey of faith, sometimes you got to look back and sort of reflect on the things that you've made it through. This is what the psalmist is leading the, the traveling community to do through this psalm. But when most would tend to look back and look at what they've achieved and celebrate all the battles they've won. Look at all the successes we've had. Look at all the things that we've accomplished. Israel's reflection, however, if you paid attention to the psalm, focuses on all that they have survived. I don't know about you, but this resonates with me. In a season not necessarily marked by thriving, but surviving. Anyone else in the same boat today? <laughs> I don't know about you. I don't, I don't feel like I'm thriving. But by God's grace, we are surviving. And this ought to resonate with us as a church. Now, it's very popular for churches to do annual reports where they give the numbers. They talk about all the things that they've achieved. Here's all the people that came to our services. Here's all the sermon downloads. Here's how many baptisms we had. Here's how many countries we supported. Here's how many ministry partners we have. And and there is a time to pause and to celebrate these sort of things, but there's also a need to look back and reflect upon the losses and the struggle. There's, There's a need to be honest about the whole story because over time, if we only reflect on the positive things, if we only reflect on the wins, then I think we begin to lack integrity. And we begin to lack honesty. The honest story about reality is one of both blessings and some really tough losses. I'm seeing some nodded heads with some of us that have been around here for a long time. Maybe more losses than wins. In our 13 years, we've experienced things like buildings falling apart on us, bad business deals, shady landlords. We've been kicked out of buildings. We, at certain points, couldn't afford buildings. We've had baptism services where everyone that was planned on getting baptized backed out, and we stood in the water there just hoping someone would give their life to Jesus. No. (laughs) We've had attempted church splits. We've had major leadership turnovers. We've had multiple leaders disqualified because of serious moral failure. We've had expensive severance packages for employees that were toxic. Among the people that have called reality home, some of us have experienced rape, suicide, even murder. 
there have been divorces, abuse, um, people walked away from the faith, we faced death. There's angry people that have left, really surprising kind people that you would have never imagined that have left. We've been told that the church would die. I've been called evil. I've lost friends for this thing. And I will never forget a pastor that I at one time trusted saying that it would be better if reality Stockton just went away. I hope you know what you're getting into when you joined this thing. <laughs> Greatly have they afflicted us from our youth, yet they have not prevailed against us. And here we stand. And we're not testimonies of wisdom. We're not testimonies of strength. But we are, however, testimonies of God's grace. And that's what the Apostle Paul talks about when he says in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What is reality? It's clay, man. Why? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Always carrying in the body, forsaken rather, not struck down, I lost my place here. I may need my sunglasses in just a moment. Do you guys mind if I preach with my sunglasses on? Is that going to trip you up? Okay. I may need it in just a second, but I'll move into the shade for just a moment. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What a testimony. What a triumph. See, as it's been said before, our wounds and our weakness are what actually reveal our greatest strength. What's so great about Reality Church Stockton? What's so great about this church? I'll tell you two things. Our wounds and our great Savior. And if I'm reading this thing right, that is a recipe for victory. You scroll through social media right now, and I don't know if they just kind of like know that I'm a pastor, but I'm seeing church after church after church that is desperately trying to triumph through success. We are the brightest. We are the best. We are the funniest. We are the most technologically advanced. We are not skipping a beat in pandemic season. The longer I walk this path of faith, the more I realize that God's people don't triumph through success. They triumph through defeat. Have we learned nothing through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Who said, if you tear down this temple, I will raise it in three days. I think we as Christians want to be raised up, but we're unwilling to be first broken down. But God's people are those who are torn down and rise again. Tertullian, the early church father, said it is the, the blood of the martyrs that's the seed of the church. The more you press us, the more you hurt us, the more you wound us, the greater our impact, the greater the reach of the kingdom. As the pressure is turned up, God's people shine. Now, the story of God's people all throughout time is marked by two things, if you're taking notes, that we see here in Psalm 129. I'm going to keep it very simple today. God's people are marked by resilience and God's righteousness. 
God's resilience and God's righteousness. Let's look first at resilience in verses 1 through 3. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, or that's like a preacher today saying, can I get a witness? Say it again. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. In the 18th century, Frederick the Great, uh, he was the ruler of Prussia. He was known as being an agnostic. He was a skeptic of the Christian faith and the Bible. But he got into a conversation with one of the royal court chaplains. And he said, all right, all right, all right. If this whole faith and Bible thing that you confess is true, then there's got to be some sort of evidence. If the Bible that you believe is true, there must be empirical evidence to prove it. It's a good statement. And so the chaplain replied, Your Majesty, I can answer your request for proof in just one word. And so Frederick the Great looks at him with just baffled, and he's saying, Okay, what is this one word that carries such magic powers? And the royal court chaplain responds, Israel. Israel, Your Majesty. The proof that the story of God is true is found in Israel. Israel has always been the underdog, never the biggest, never the best, never the strongest. Rarely did they experience times of of peace. They were often divided, oppressed, invaded, exiled, imprisoned, and occupied by foreign nations, sometimes multiple at one time. This is what's being expressed in this picture of the plowers upon this back. It's an image of the corporate body of Israel. And a slave with his back scarred by whips, driven hard. The cords were often used to express military or political enslavement and power. But not only is this biblically true, we know this is historically true. Even into the last century, we we saw the, the, the potential extinction of Israel under the devastation of the Nazi party. The point is this, Israel should have never made it. It has always been a volatile people, and that goes all the way back to its roots in an old barren couple named Abraham and Sarah. This thing shouldn't have worked. It's always been teetering on the edge of defeat, and yet God kept his promise and preserved his remnant people. So what does that mean for us? Well, likewise, in the New Testament, the scriptures describe us as Christians, as believers, as the spiritual Israel, the new Israel that is now children of Abraham, not by flesh, but by faith. We're a part of this legacy. And we are, too, a people that are always facing pressures and always facing opposition. We are a people that should have never made it. Christian history is also a very volatile history. We Think about all the original disciples, if not all of them but one, were killed in the first years of Christianity. And yet God preserved his people. And so when the psalmist says, our enemies have not prevailed against us, this word prevail can mean conquer, crush. But it also can mean endure. And that that paints a very vivid picture for us here. And it's this, that God's people outlast their oppressors. 
you may have more strength than us. You may have more resources than us. You may have larger numbers than us. You may have more uh, cultural and political influence than us, but you simply cannot outlast us. We prevail through persevering. We fall, and by God's grace, we get up again. We got staying power. We're resilient people. There's a line from Hamilton, oceans rise and empires fall, okay. And this has been true of all of the powerful enemies that have risen up against God's people. Pharaoh rose and what happened to him? He fell. Babylon rose and then what happened? It fell. Assyria rose and it fell. Nero, the great persecutor of the Christian church, he rose to power and then he fell. Worldly power, especially unjust and oppressive power, listen to me, is always temporary. Worldly power is always temporary. Their legacy is like the grass on the roof, as the psalmist describes in verse 6. It is here today and gone forever. And yet God's remnant people remain. And this is the legacy of faith that we join as well. As I mentioned at the beginning of this series, God's grace and presence with us does not mean that we are untouchable. But God's grace and presence with us does, however, mean that we're unstoppable. And this resilience that we see throughout history and this resilience that we've experienced even as a church is not the result of our determination. It's not the result of our grit. It's not the result of our innovation or our wherewithal, but it is the result of God's faithfulness and his character at work among us. And that's where the psalmist really wants to, to point our attention, which leads to our second point today, God's righteousness. God's righteousness. Look with me in verses four and five. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. And so the psalmist is adamant about giving credit where credit is due. Our one and only source of hope and rescue is in the righteous Lord who reigns over Zion. He is the one who broke us free from the power and reign of evil. He is the one who who brings shame upon our enemies. He is the one that turns our enemies backward so that we can move forward. And the hope of the people, he says, is the righteousness of God. What is our hope as a people? What is a hope for our future? Here's the answer. That God is righteous. Can I get an amen? All right. Now, this isn't just a reference to God's moral perfection, but God being just. God is not just Israel's moral standard setter. He is Israel, and now our king who establishes his throne. As the psalmist tells us elsewhere, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. When God rules and he reigns, he does so with justice and equity. And so what this means is that whenever and wherever worldly powers rise, the throne of God will always be there standing above them all. And when worldly powers inevitably come to nothing, guess what? God will remain. They will wither, gone into history, and yet God's throne remains. This is what gives us confidence 
when we face suffering. This is what gives us courage to face affliction. This is what compels us to keep getting up again. What is it? Our God reigns. Jesus is on the throne. And when we think of justice, oftentimes we think of punitive action. And what we need to understand is that when the scripture describes God's justice, when God executes justice, it is saving, it is healing, and it's restorative. It is punitive in the, in the sense that God is eradicating all the things that compromise life like evil and sin. But more importantly, it's God pouring life and power into the things that do promote life among his people. And this is what we're praying, whether we know it or not, when we say, let your kingdom come. It's We're asking for God to invoke his divine judgment on all of the kingdoms that rise and oppose God's power. And instead, God cause God's power and God's kingdom to penetrate our lives and penetrate our world. Spread your kingdom, establish your kingdom in our lives and in our world. Now, Psalms create ways to express our trust in a just God, especially in the midst of an unjust world especially in, all, in the midst of all the things that we see when we tune into the news. And psalms like this one are the way that we as individuals and as a congregation can trust him with all the things that hurt us, with all the things that anger us, with all the things that come against us or the people that we love or the people that are most vulnerable among us. These are what are known as imprecatory prayers, psalms of vengeance, I look back at the last five years, I have not yet once preached a psalm of vengeance until today. (laughs) And I feel like 2020 is kind of like the ideal year for it. (laughs) Maybe God was holding out, waiting for this moment. There are two things that we're tempted to do when we are wronged. If you're like me, you are tempted to lash out, to get back, pay back, defend yourself, make it right by taking things into your own hands. There's another temptation, and that is to simply ignore it. If you've been wrong, to just kind of sweep it under the rug. One response is the emotionally triggered response. The other response is stoic. I'm just going to grit my teeth and pretend that didn't happen. But what we see from Scripture is that both of these approaches make justice and healing impossible. But the Bible gives to us a third and a better way, and it's this. Entrust it whatever it is, to the justice of God. Take that thing that hurt you. Take that thing that angers you. Take that thing that keeps you up at night and entrust it to the justice of God. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament would say, brothers, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And for by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Don't take it into your own hands. Entrust it to God. And somehow, we are able to both seek judgment, seek God to judge an individual, and yet at the same time, uphold our call to love and care for our enemies when we trust it to God. And this is what makes justice and healing possible. Now, if this sounds otherworldly, it's because it is. 
Where do you see this in the world? Where do you see this in your life? Recently, my kids and I have been reading through the Psalms. And when you're paying attention, you'll realize that there's actually quite a few imprecatory prayers. There's quite a few Psalms of, for judgment and vengeance. And if you're reading through the Psalms from beginning to the end, you're confronted with it by the third chapter, where, where the psalmist calls upon God and says, Arise, O Lord, and, and save me from my enemies. You strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. You, like, bash their face in. And I'll never forget the look on my children's face as I read this passage. It was like a combination of shock and surprise and like a, okay, I'm listening. <laughs> this is our God. The king isn't safe, Lewis would say. He's good, but he isn't safe. Paul would say elsewhere in Romans, note then the kindness and severity of God. Aren't those two strange descriptions when it comes to God? His kindness and his severity. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. And while prayers for God to crush the oppressors and to cut them off, they may make you uncomfortable. If they're making you uncomfortable right now, think about this entire week trying to prepare for this message. They're uncomfortable. But what we need to understand is that these very same words have brought hope and joy to those who found themselves on the wrong side of worldly power structures. And listen to me, God's severity is God's kindness to the defenseless. And so when the church is embarrassed by prayers like this, or when the church, which I've heard countless times, tries to explain these passages away, or just like, eh, we're just going to pretend we didn't read that. It is probably a sign that we've been living in a very comfortable bubble and have been turning a blind eye to the ache of the real world. Our discomfort over pa passages like this is what's been called a suburban problem. It's a first world problem to feel uncomfortable when it talks about God seeking vengeance. But when the people of God open their eyes to the reality of evil in the world and step in to represent the healing reign of God, then the more we're going to find passages like this very hopeful and helpful. Because these, whether you recognize it or not, are holy words to bring to God when we or others are facing a situation where vengeance is necessary. Now, as we talk about vengeance, we need to humbly remember something. That while the Bible describes us as those who are helplessly harassed and oppressed by evil and sin, it also describes us, every single one of us, as enemies of God because of our sin. And every single one of us under God's judgment because of our rebellion. We were those who hate Zion. We were those who rebel against God's throne. We are both the wounded and the wounders of history. And yet Jesus, can I get an amen? And yet Jesus, who is the perfect embodiment of God's justice, took the curse and shame. Oh gosh, Mike Pence all over again here. Sorry. 
took the curse and the worst time for that. I'm sorry, guys. The, The curse and the shame upon himself so that by faith we could receive God's blessing. If you, if you caught this, at the end of the psalm, the psalmist is saying, withhold blessing from them, God. Let no one ever say, God bless you, to that person. And that was us. And yet Christ took the curse and took the shame so that the blessing of God could come to us. He was judged so that we could be justified. And so as we look at this passage, I want you to consider the afflicted and suffering man that Psalm 129 describes. This is not just a reference to human suffering. This is for the Christian, a picture of Jesus. Look back at that Bible in front of you and and, and consider these descriptions. Isaiah 50 describes Jesus as the one who offered his back to be plowed. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as the suffering servant. By his wounds, we were healed. Colossians 2 describes Jesus as cutting the cords of our enemies, putting our enemy, Satan, sin, and death to shame through his death and resurrection. And and Acts 17 says that God has appointed a day when Christ will return to judge the world in righteousness. The cross became the throne from which King Jesus rules over the world. Think about it. The cross is the place where defeat was forever turned into victory where wounds were turned into healing, where shame was transformed into dignity, where suffering was transformed into glory, and not just for Jesus, but for us as well. I'm just going to move far away from this thing. It's following me. Whatever. Because Jesus was vindicated when God raised him on the third day, there's a promise of our vindication as well when we believe upon Christ. And this is what creates resilience in his people. This is how we keep persevering in the face of difficulty and opposition. Because God raised Christ up, we can too keep getting up. Because Jesus rose on the third day when we are knocked down, we can get up again. We are not defeated because Jesus forever reigns in victory. So this is our story. I mean, this is like our whole story here. Lots of scars and a bright future. If I were asked to describe this church, that would be the description. Lots of scars, but a very bright future. And I think what we're learning as a church is that it's pointless. It is so absolutely pointless to try to erase our past and to conceal our scars. That only limits us. That only forfeits spiritual power and strength. But like in the upper room, when when Jesus told Doubting Thomas, I know that you're struggling to believe what has just happened. Now put your hand in my wounds. Put your hand in my scars. We are praying that our broken history as a church, our scars, can somehow be used by God as a testimony of God's resurrection power among us. And serve as an open door to truly broken people. Where truly broken people can find a home and fit in. Be honest with God and their neighbor about who they really are. While we're never going to accurately reflect God's perfection and holiness, not this side of glory. I am confident, however, that we as a church 
can reveal God's transforming grace and his strength that is manifested in our weakness. So I'm going to ask it again. What is so great about Reality Church Stockton? Two things. Our wounds and our Savior, which is a recipe for victory. Amen? God, we thank you for this time.